I want to invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to talk today about Zechariah's song. A song of praise. Luke chapter 1, as, as we begin, I, I, just, I just want to emphasize uh, here at the very onset of this message the, the purpose that I'm coming to today. We serve a God who keeps His promises. We serve a God who His Word is established and it doesn't change. And because He says, I am the Lord, I change not, He is faithful, He can be trusted. We can depend on God to carry out everything he said. And so just as we move our way up to this story and to, to Christmas and to Zachariah's song, I want to just give you a, just a quick synopsis of a few of the prophecies, the promises from the Old Testament that Jesus came to fulfill. Because everything that was said he would do he did or is still going to do. And so I just want to give you an overview. Don't try to follow me here in the scriptures with these. You'll, you'll hurt your thumbs trying to keep up. But the Bible tells us this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve were promised that a Savior would one day come and crush the serpent's head. In Isaiah 7, the promised Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Micah 5, he would be born... In Bethlehem, <clears throat> he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles according to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Genesis 22 and Jeremiah 23 communicate to us that he would be born of the lineage of Abraham and of David. Isaiah 40 verse 3 tells us that his ministry would be preceded by a messenger to prepare the way for him. It's also communicated in Malachi 3 and 4. The word also tells us that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver in Psalm 55 and in Zechariah 11.3. Now let me just stop for a minute and, and not assume biblical literacy. All of these verses that I'm communicating to you were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. You need to understand that these are prophetic statements that were given to the people of God in the Old Testament. And in the day in which Jesus lived, these verses were a part of what they understood to be the Bible. This was their Bible. The Old Testament that we have was what they believed in the day that Jesus was born. And all of these verses communicate about his life. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 tell us that he would be rejected by his own people, that he would be wounded, that he would be bruised, that he would be pierced as the sacrifice for our sins. So even that final act as Jesus hung on the cross, when they pierced him in his side to make sure that he was dead, was a fulfillment, an exact fulfillment of the promise of God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 60, uh, 16, in Psalm 68, and in Psalm 110, that he would rise from the dead and then ascend to the right hand of God in heaven. <clears throat> How many of you believe today that God keeps his promises? Did you know that in the last 24 hours of his life, Jesus fulfilled <clears throat> 29 prophecies about his life? Just in the last 24 hours, 29 specific Old Testament 
prophecies were fulfilled. And all of these predictions came through several different people over the course of 500 years. Different people from different walks of life prophesied these things and Jesus fulfilled them. <clears throat> there were some mathematicians who, who were fascinated with this reality and they began to crunch the numbers and, and put it together. And, and they determined mathematically that for one person to fulfill just eight, just eight of the prophecies about Jesus, for one human being to fulfill eight of those prophecies, mathematically, the odds would work out to one in ten to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. To make it more clear, it would be if you took half dollars and you stacked them next to each other and covered the entire state of Texas, not just one layer, but two feet deep, and just one of those coins had a special mark on it. And then you blindfolded somebody in Oklahoma and you sent them down to Texas to pick up one random coin. The odds of them picking up the coin that you marked are the odds mathematically of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies foretold about Jesus. They carried it a little farther. <clears throat> and they, they said for one person to fulfill 48 of the prophecies would be a 1 in 10 to the 157th power. But the Bible says that there are over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Some have even estimated that it's 365, one promise for every day. And so the mathematicians put their numbers to the calculator and said, what are the odds of someone fulfilling over 300 Old Testament prophecies themselves? And the answer is only Jesus. Oh, only Jesus could fulfill every promise about him in the Old Testament. I want to give you a verse of scripture this morning before we read our text. It's found in the book of Numbers. I'm going to put this one on the screen. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 communicates to us the difference between the word of God and your word. The difference between the word of God and your parents' word or your spouse's word or anyone who at one point in your life you thought you could absolutely trust to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Here's the difference. The Bible says in Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not human, that He should lie. Not a human being, that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does He promise and not fulfill? Of course, these are rhetorical questions because God never changes his mind. God cannot lie. Somebody says, well, I didn't know there was anything God couldn't do. Yes, there are things God can't do. Namely, he can't tell a lie. <coughs> He's not human. In other words, it's our natural tendency to either change our mind or to go back on our word. But God is not a man like us that he should lie. So today, I want to just emphasize this point that God is a God who keeps His promises. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at Mary and the song that she sang in response to the angelic visitation about the coming of the Lord. 
And in that story, we met another incredible woman of God. We met Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. And if you look in Luke (coughs) chapter 1, you see some things about Elizabeth. (coughs) The Bible says that Elizabeth was righteous in the sight of God. That she lived a holy and a blameless life. In fact, that's the reason I believe that Elizabeth was so sensitive to the voice of the Lord, to the presence of Jesus. In fact, look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Verse 41 says, and we read it last week, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leaped, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The moment that Jesus, even... In his first term, in the womb of a young virgin girl, when he came into the presence of Elizabeth, she sensed his presence. And the Bible says she was filled with the Holy Spirit. But the earlier verse in that chapter we're about to look at communicates why. She was a woman of God. She lived a blameless life. And and this is just extra. I just want to throw this in right here at the beginning. Because there's a lot of people that come into church and and they feel like their, their praise and their prayers aren't getting past the rafters. And that they just feel like God is far and they can't hear God and God doesn't hear them. And they wonder, they wonder why they don't sense the presence of God. And what I want to tell you today is that your willingness to obey the commands of God are in direct correlation with your ability to hear the voice of God. I'm going to say that twice because I got no response out of you. Your willingness, see if you don't want this to go long, just say amen the first time. Your willingness... To obey the commands of God is a direct correlation and relation to your ability to hear the voice of God. So when you're yielded to His Word and you're walking in His statutes and truths, and then God speaks, God shows up, God moves, whether it's in your personal life or in a corporate setting like this, you're prone to respond. Why? Because Jesus said, My sheep know my voice. And His voice is primarily spoken through His Word. So when we're not hearing His voice, when we're intentionally avoiding His commands, this isn't the message, but I'm just giving this to you anyway. When we're not listening to what God is saying to us, we shouldn't be surprised when we come into a worship service and we seek God and we feel like He can't be found. But Elizabeth served God with a pure heart. In fact, today I want you to meet her other half. I want you to meet her husband, Zechariah. See, Elizabeth, as we said last week, was the first person to lift up a prophetic voice for God in over 400 years of prophetic silence. God hadn't spoken since he spoke through Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. For 400 years, God wasn't speaking, but but God used Elizabeth to speak prophetically a word to Mary. But her husband, Zechariah, he was the first person in that same time span to actually hear a message from the Lord. The reason the prophets weren't speaking is because God wasn't talking to him. But Zechariah heard a word from God through a messenger sent from heaven. And we're going to read about it in just a minute. Have you ever met one of those Christian couples where <coughs> you just felt like they were like the perfect Christian couple? Like, I don't know, like he was like a a preacher's son from like a big church or something. And then he went to like a Christian youth camp and met a preacher's daughter from another church. And and they got together and everybody voted them camp king and queen. You know, 
And it was like, they were just like the perfect people, or, or maybe they, you know, they went to some Bible college somewhere, and it was like, boy, this family has a prominent ministry in this state, and this family has a prominent worldwide ministry over here, and somehow their kids got together at Bible college, and you just look at them, and you're like, man, these people are the perfect, the perfect super Christian family. And you just, you, you, you love secretly to hate them. <laughs> right? <You're> like, <laughs> this was Zachariah and Elizabeth. This was them. I mean, look with me in Luke chapter 1, verse (coughs) 5. It's where we meet this couple. Luke 1, verse 5 says, In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest. He was a man of God named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, (coughs) was also a descendant of Aaron. So he came... From the priestly line, and so did, so did she. So these are both people that have been raised up in the priesthood. Now look at verse 6. It says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, obtaining or observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. <coughs> Pretty awesome. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Observing all of God's commands. Serving Him blamelessly with a pure heart. People looked at them and thought, wow, these folks have it all together. And you probably can picture somebody in your mind like that. You go, those folks have it all together. I, don't, I just don't understand. I mean, my life is not like their life. I try to do this thing. And, and me and my wife, we, we try to do this thing. But it just seems like they've got it all, all together. And that would be the perception that we would have of Zechariah and Elizabeth if... The summary ended there. But I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the Bible doesn't, doesn't paint its character with rose-colored lenses. I'm glad for the, the, the grit in the Word of God. I mean, I've said for years the Bible is a PG-13 book. I'm thankful that, that God doesn't just reveal to us the strength of Moses to lead the people out. But also we get a glimpse in Exodus 3 of his timidity and his cowardice to push back from the call of God. We see his failures before we see his victories. I'm glad that the Bible doesn't just tell us that David was a man after God's own heart, though he certainly was. But we know to be become that man he also had a dark past that he had to overcome that david was also an adulterer and a murderer i'm glad that the bible shows us both sides of the coin lest we look at the people of god in the word and even in the church and go man i can't relate to those folks they've got it all together i mean here's here's zachariah grown up in a in a in a preacher's home and here's Elizabeth, she's grown up in a preacher's home and they both love God. They both serve God. They both just uh, obey all the commands of God. Man, I, I can't relate to those folks. But look at the next verse. Verse 7 says, But they were <coughs> childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. I mentioned last week in talking about Mary, the significance to women in Judaism of being able to bear a child. It it, literally, it was their, it was their most clearly understood and known purpose in life was to bring forth children. And so to not be able to bring forth a child was to say to a woman in Judaism that you, you can't even live up to your purpose. 
You can't even fulfill your responsibility to not be able to give your husband a child meant that your family name would end with him. That the, the property and the real estate and the possessions that you own that would be passed down through the family will not be passed down anymore. It's going to go to somebody else. To not be able to have kids meant that you and your spouse had no certainty about your future. Because there was no, uh, there was no social security. There was no government uh, program. The program was you're going to get old and your kids are going to take care of you. That was the program. And so to not have children, to not have anyone to take care of them, to help them, their future looked bleak. And here's Elizabeth and Zechariah, and it says, but they were childless. I just wonder, in a room this size, how many of us, if there was a summary of our life, would have a but they were statement on the end of it? Like, love God. Oh, they love God. Go to church. Oh, love, go to church. Yep, good, good. Praise God. But they were something in your life that just says, you know what? God's good. God's faithful. We love God. But, but there's this thing that we've struggled with for a long time. There's this issue that, that has plagued us. This, this has been a thorn in our flesh. This has been a, a battle for us. This has been a, a struggle, a difficulty, so much so that we have, we have had to really wrestle with faith, to trust God, to believe God. They loved God, but they were, in their case, childless. They were childless. <coughs> Not only were they childless, but the verse goes on to say, look at verse 7. It goes on to say, and they were both very old so in one sentence we have a summary that communicates to us a life of unmet expectations a life of unfulfilled (laughs) dreams yes they were righteous in the sight of god yes they obeyed all the laws and the commands and yet they had spent decades by now because they were very old hoping praying believing that God would give them a child, anticipating a child that would never come. And, and the window of opportunity by now has been nailed shut because it doesn't just say they were, they were old or they were up in years. The Bible very disrespectfully says they were very old. <clears throat> so I would imagine they're at the place now where maybe it's been years or even decades since they've even asked the Lord for a child. Maybe that's a prayer of their past. You know, for a long time they were saying, God, give us a child. God, give us a child. But I would tend to believe that at this point in their life, now that they're very old, they have moved from hoping to coping. What they used to dream about and hope for, now they're just learning to deal with the reality that it'll never happen. They've moved past hoping to Coping, and I, and I wonder if any of us are in that place where there was something that you desired from God, something that you hoped that God would do. Your heart was set on it. You dreamed about it. You talked about it. You planned for it, but that day never came. And it's so far in the rearview mirror of your faith journey that you're beyond hoping for it to just coping with the reality that that's not going to be your story. 
And if that is you, my heart is moved towards you as I've been meditating on this text because I see something incredible, a high standard that Zechariah and Elizabeth set. And, and I hope that we can be there, but I want to admit it's a struggle to be at a place where you can live blameless and holy before God, that you can continue to serve Him with a pure heart year after year, coping with unmet expectations and not having your hopes fulfilled. But I want to tell you, as we look at this story today, <coughs> there's a song that I believe Christmas is singing to us. And the song is that we serve a God who keeps His promises. His promises. He keeps them. So let's just take a few moments and let's look at Zechariah. Verse 8 says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as the priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Christmas story and, and you, you know where this is going, you understand that Zechariah is about to have a face-to-face encounter with an angel of the Lord. Gabriel himself is about to show up. And so I, I find a little irony in the story that verse 9 says he was chosen by Lot. In other words, they just threw the dice. They took a chance to see whose opportunity it would be to go into the presence of the Lord. I, I have to kind of laugh at that because I understand that this is a divine moment. This is a, a holy setup right here, that God is doing something in the life of Zechariah that is so much bigger than his own story. L- let me help you to understand the irony. In this day that he's living, there were about, <coughs> about 20,000 priests in the priesthood of Aaron. That's a lot of preachers. And so <coughs> there's only one temple. How many of you know that's not a lot of time to share? 20,000 preachers and and one platform. And so what they did is they divided the priesthood into groups. And each group would go and they would serve for two weeks out of the year. So for two weeks out of the year, this group of priests would go and they would serve. And each of the priests would have some responsibility, some task to take care of at the temple during the two weeks of service that they had in the year. And of all the jobs that anybody could have, the one that they wanted the most, I mean, this was like, the, this was the one you lived for, was the opportunity <coughs> to go up to the altar and to burn incense on the altar. And if you ever got that opportunity, if you ever, if the lots fell on you and you had the opportunity to go and to burn incense on the altar and to offer up the prayers for the people of God, if you ever got that opportunity, then your name was taken out of the hat because you were only allowed to do it once. Once in your whole life. So this is like the, the National Guard of, of the priesthood. It's just, just two weeks out of the year. Come and serve and, and then you're done. And... It just so happens that Zechariah's group is assigned to the temple. <coughs> and it just so happens that the lots fell to Zechariah to go in to the presence of God and to burn incense on the altar. <coughs> I want to tell you this morning that 
you're no more here by coincidence than Zechariah was chosen by the casting of lots to be in the temple burning incense at the moment that the angel Gabriel showed up from heaven with an announcement. It's not a coincidence where you're at right now in this moment. Not just in this facility, but even in this moment of your life. See, the Bible says in Psalm 139 that all the days of your life were ordained, were written in God's book before even one of them was lived out. Proverbs 16 33 says this, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That, that, that just means to us that the God who, who controls the revolution of the earth around the sun is absolutely Lord over the revolution of dice. That even when we think things are being up to chance, God is still sovereign over them. God is Lord. You can cast lots into the lap, but the Lord is the one who makes the final decision. I heard someone say this, that coincidences are just miracles where God chooses to remain anonymous. God's working in this situation. He's working in Zechariah's life. And I want you to know that God can orchestrate the situations and the circumstances that you're facing with. God can orchestrate your life to get you in the place you need to be at the time you need to be there to hear what God wants to say to you. That's why I think this little uh, synopsis of their life in verse 6 is so important. It's so important to our understanding of what God is doing because verse 6 said both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God. Now that we know their story, now that we know of her barrenness, it's all that much more significant that year after year, without having her expectations met, without having her dreams and her hopes fulfilled, she was righteous in the sight of God. Zechariah never became bitter towards God. He never turned his back on God. Even though he said, God, I'm doing everything that you've told me to do. Why won't you just give me this one thing that I desire? He never turned his back on God. Even in the face of disappointment, they faithfully obeyed, it says, the Lord's commandments. And blamelessly, blamelessly they followed his decrees. You know, the Bible says the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. Which puts a little bit of responsibility on us, doesn't it? You know, if you want to hear God's voice, you need to be willing to obey His commands. (coughs) And Zechariah and Elizabeth, to the best of their ability, through their pain, through their disappointment, they're obeying the commands of the Lord. They're doing everything that God's called them to do, even through their tears. And yet, there's something, there's something that they're clinging to. There's something that they're hoping for that is even bigger than their own dreams. They had expectation. Sure, they had dreams, they had plans for a child, but they had expectation of a promise to be fulfilled. And God always keeps His promises. So while they're facing the the discouragement and the disappointment of not having a child of their own, they're clinging to a promise. And the promise is beautifully communicated to us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. In fact, all of our kids upstairs are memorizing this verse this month. So you can ask them if they know it after the service. The Bible says to us, and this is the promise from God, for unto us a child 
is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. There was something deeper than their own desire, a conviction that goes down to the core where faith abides inside Zechariah and Elizabeth that said, God has promised a son. We might not have the child that we hoped for, but we're still living in obedience and expectation of the arrival of a son because we serve a God who always keeps His promises even when our plans fail. I won't ask you to nod your head or raise your hand, but just ask yourself the question, have I started doubting God's promise because my plans failed? Have I stopped believing what he said would happen because what I said should happen didn't happen? They were committed. (coughs) They stayed faithful to God. They served him even when their their plans failed. They held on to a promise. (coughs) The Bible says this in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19 and verse 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. (coughs) Psalm 37 tells us this in verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of, of your heart. Now that's a powerful verse. Communicates the priority of our life and the response of God. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now I've heard people quote half of that verse. <coughs> when you quote half a verse, you can get in a lot of trouble. I've heard people say some foolish things that they wanted to do, that they things they wanted to 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 accomplish, or or people they wanted to. Uh, to get together with and somebody they wanted to marry and then they tagged on the end of their hope and dream well the bible says the lord will give me the desires of my heart you ever heard somebody say that before well the bible says god will give me the desires of my heart yes it does in psalm 37 4 b but the first part of that verse is the most critical part take delight in the lord Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. There has to be a moment in life where we first take all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our ambitions and desires, and we say, God, as much as I want all of these things, I am entrusting my whole life to you. To delight myself in the Lord means simply to say this, that God, I will find the most joy, the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment in knowing that my life is completely in your hands. Now, what you do with it is completely up to you. Surrender to God has no strings attached. Not God, I'll serve you if you'll do this. Not God, I'll I'll live for you if you'll give me this, if you'll meet this need, if you'll bless me financially. Lord, I'll go anywhere you want, just not Africa. Right? Right? And honestly, what that is, is a demonstration of a lack of faith in the goodness of God. When we put conditions on our yieldedness, what we're really saying is, God, I trust you 99.9%. I trust you in every area of my life except, except right here. Because God, if, if, you don't, if you don't fix this, if you don't do this, if you don't heal that, if you don't bless me in this area, 
I don't know if I can go with you. But when we delight ourselves in the Lord, we can have a testimony that says, (coughs) but they were childless, but they were sick in their body, but they were struggling emotionally. Whatever it might be, it's not a condition that's going to disqualify my faithfulness because I'm not clinging to my plan. I'm clinging to His promises. And He's a God who keeps His promises. And He's a good God, and I can trust Him. And and that's what they did in that moment. They delighted themselves in the Lord, even above their own desires. (coughs) And the cool thing about that verse is that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, The second part is true. God will give us the desires of our heart. God will bless our lives. God's not not trying to, to see how much He can make us suffer. He wants to bless your life. He wants to be good to you. Look look with me quickly at the next portion of Scripture here. Verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him. Here's Zechariah. He's standing in the temple now before the Lord at the altar, burning the incense. And the angel appears to him, (coughs) standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. (coughs) I read that and I had to wonder, what prayer is he talking about? I mean, if he's talking about the prayer for a child, this is probably a prayer that Zechariah hasn't prayed in a long, long time which communicates to me the power and effectiveness of our prayers, that they don't just disappear into the atmosphere, that they don't just float up out of the rafters of the church, that our prayers are always brought in remembrance before the Lord. It's pretty incredible to think that God would send the angel Gabriel to tell him, hey, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. What prayers? The ones I prayed 20 years ago? The ones I quit praying in my 60s? What prayers? I'm very old. What prayers are you talking about? Your prayers have been answered. Now maybe maybe it meant the prayer he just prayed. He's standing here representing the people. He may very well have been calling out for God to send a deliverer, to send the promised one, to send the Messiah. Lord, redeem your people. And really at any rate, it doesn't matter because the response to Gabriel is that God heard both prayers. And that's the goodness of God in this situation. That He is redeeming His world, doing His work. And because He is full of grace and full of mercy, He looks at the little obscure and inessential needs in your life and my life. And He says, you know, I'm going to do that too. Just because. I mean, I could do this without you, but I'm going to meet your need. I heard your prayer. And I heard the prayers of my people. And He goes on in the next few verses. (coughs) Gabriel communicates verse 14 through 17, the summary of what John the Baptist's ministry will be about. Zechariah and Elizabeth were the parents of John the Baptist, the one who went before Jesus, prepared the way for his ministry. And so the angel Gabriel outlines for him what that ministry's going to be like. And then look at verse 18 with me. I, I just have to emphasize this point today. It says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. (coughs) I I just, I have to laugh at this scenario because, I mean, we've probably all asked God for proof before, right? 
you know, we've probably all done that at some point or another. God, could you just oh, man, confirm it? You know, let me, I don't know, let me see a rainbow on my way home from work today. Or you know, <coughs> if I walk into the grocery store and somebody smiles at me and says, God bless you, I'll know it's you. I'll know it's you. But imagine this scenario. Once in a lifetime opportunity. He's in the presence of God. He's burning incense on the altar. He's the mediator between God and man in this priestly role. An angel from heaven, not just an angel, the archangel, Gabriel, shows up and begins to talk to him. And then he says, could I have some proof? (coughs) I mean, like, really, what what do you need at this point? I mean, I, I don't know what kind of proof you ask God for, but I don't ever say, like, could you send Gabriel? If Gabriel would come and, like, tell me what he wants me to do, I'll buy in. I, I, I need a lot less than that. You know, <laughs> I mean, like, God, if I sneeze three times, you know. you know. <laughs> and, of course, I'm joking. I, I don't think it's a good idea that we always fleece God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. I, I don't think we need to live in that day. After Pentecost, we don't see that happening. They just heard the Spirit and they obeyed. But in this moment, he's saying, God, can I get some proof? (laughs) And I love Gabriel's answer. I don't know if Gabriel's still speaking for the Lord, honestly, or if he goes off script here. Like, look at it with me. He says, I am Gabriel. Like, hello. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you, to tell you his good news. Like, Zechariah, are you aware of what's happening right here? And then again, I don't know if God told him to do this or if he was just agitated. But verse 20 says, and you will now be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which you come, which will come true at their appointed time. <clears throat> so be careful asking God for a sign because he might give you one and he might not give you the one you want. The angel says, you're not going to be able to speak until this baby is born. If you don't have any more faith than that, you're just not even going to be able to speak to the issue. I'm going to just do this, and you're going to watch it happen. And when the baby comes, then you'll be able to speak. Now jump forward with me nine months, ten months, and here we are at the moment (coughs) where God's promise comes to fulfillment. In verse 57, it says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. You know, it's kind of cool. Elizabeth's name means the promises of God. <coughs> That's what her name means, the promises of God. What's really cool is Zachariah's name means Jehovah remembers. So when Zachariah and Elizabeth get together in the will of God, it means God remembers his promises. Isn't that awesome? And so here they are at this moment, and John is born. And all the people are gathering around and they're saying, well, she's had this beautiful baby and now it's the eighth day. They're bringing him to be circumcised and to name him. And all the people are saying, wow, this is amazing. I mean, we, we heard the stories about what happened when Zechariah was in the temple and he saw the angel in a vision. And he came out and he was supposed to bless the people, but he couldn't talk. And so he did the first game of charades anybody ever heard of. And, and everybody heard about it. And everybody's been anticipating this incredible baby that's coming. Well, he's going to go down in history as something special. We're going to name him Zachariah Jr., right? And Elizabeth says, no. No, his name's going to be John. They're like, you can't name him John. You don't even have any Johns in your family. You can't name this baby John. You've got, you got to name him after his father. She goes, no, no, his name's, his name's going to be John. 
And so they hand Zechariah a tablet because he still can't speak. And they say, what's his name going to be? And he writes down on the tablet of wax. He carves in the words, his name is John. God is gracious. His name is John. The Bible says in that moment, all of a sudden, his tongue was loosed. His mouth was open for the first time he could speak. And he lets out a song of praise. And this is the song of, of Zechariah. <coughs> in verse 68 through 79, he begins to lift his voice in praise. And while we don't have the time this morning to, to, to dissect every aspect of the song, I want you to get the heart of the song. I want you to understand the theme of what Zechariah was saying. The theme of his song was simply this. He has come that god has been faithful that the things he promised he was going to do guess what he fulfills his promises he keeps his word he doesn't always do it when we want to do it he doesn't do it the way we wanted to do it but god is a faithful god look at it with me let's just read his song together His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 67 says, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. If you're somebody that likes to write in your Bible or highlight things, you ought to highlight that part. He has come. God is worthy of praise. This morning, we spent the first several minutes of our service lifting our hands, singing, and, and if church is not a normal thing to you, or you might have just wondered, like, why, why are we doing all this singing? Why are we doing all this uh, talking to, to God who's not in the room? I thought the preacher was going to tell us something. Listen, He is worthy of our praise for one reason, because He has come. He's come. Christmas changed everything. And so we can celebrate and praise God. He says... He has come, and He didn't just come to talk to us, to walk with us, to get to know us. (coughs) Zechariah lifts up his voice to all who will listen. He said, He has come to His people, and He's redeemed them. How did He do it? Look at the next verse. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn symbolized authority, symbolized power. (coughs) He has lifted up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. In other words, he looks back the same way Mary did in her song and says, this isn't just some new thing that God is doing. This thing that God is doing today. He said long ago, hundreds of years ago, through prophets and through kings that he was going to do this. And God is doing exactly what he said He would do in His promises. 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. (coughs) To show mercy to our ancestors, ancestors and to remember His holy covenant. The oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Again, He's drawing a thread of praise that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. To say that God is fulfilling His promises in His word. Verse 74 says, here's why. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear (coughs) in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So why, why would He come? Why would He come? He came to rescue us. He came to redeem us so that we could serve Him. Did you know that's God's desire for your life? 
He wants you to serve Him. You don't have to leave this place scratching your head wondering, what does God want from me? God sent His Son to rescue you, to save you, to redeem you, so that we could serve Him. He enabled us to serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before Him all days. I don't even have time to preach this, but listen, the enablement to serve God comes from the salvation through God. We say that differently. I'm going to make sure you get it. If you leave this place today thinking you're going to be a better person, do a better job, live up to a higher standard, be a better servant of the Lord, and you're trying to do that outside of falling on the altar of salvation and believing Jesus to rescue you, redeem you, then you're never going to be able to do it. You're going to have, you're going to have New Testament law. You're going to have what the Pharisees and the religious leaders had. This sad attempt to live up to a standard that no one can can meet. Don't leave this place today thinking, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Don't go into next year with some kind of resolution that you're going to somehow be able to do on your own what you couldn't do on your own the last several years. The word of the Lord, the psalm, breaks forth from Zechariah and it says, He will enable us. He will enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. And then the next part of the song, it's like Zechariah is so excited about the promise of God being fulfilled. It's almost like for a moment he forgot about his plan that it failed. And that's a good place to be. When we can be so consumed with the promise of God that we're not even bothered by the plans that failed in our own life. He's so excited that God is doing what God promised He would do that halfway through His song, He's like, oh yeah, He's got this beautiful, healthy baby in His arms. And He turns His attention towards John. And He says, and you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That's exactly what Malachi said 400 years before was coming. He was still holding on to the promise of God. And now he's speaking it over his son's life. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because because of the tender mercies of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. That's Jesus. It's also in Malachi to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. (coughs) He says, John, this is is the part you're going to play in all of this. God spoke to me. God made it clear. God's fulfilled His promises. God's fulfilled His promises. And I want to tell you this morning that the song of Christmas is that we serve a God who will fulfill His promises in your life. So if you're in a place where you're, you're doubting You're doubting God. Maybe the reason you're doubting God's promises is because He hasn't fulfilled your plans. So the first thing we need to do is we need to lay all of our plans and our agenda on the altar. Don't come to God again with strings attached. Don't come to God with with a bargaining chip. Don't come with a negotiating strategy or tactic in your back pocket that says, God, if you'll do this, this, and this, then I will give you my whole life. You need to have an attitude like Job who, who got to the point where he was so desperate and so confused because everything was going wrong. He made this incredible statement of faith from the depths of his pain. He said, though he slay me, still I'll serve him. What he was saying in that moment was no strings attached. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. 
Lord, you can be glorified through my life, whether it's in victory or defeat, God. No strings attached. Don't let the disappointment of your plans cause you to bail out on the hope of His promise. Because God is doing an incredible work. And and the song of Christmas is telling us not just that God came to send His Son to save us, but that He came to enable us to be everything that He's called us to be. Jesus spelled it out clearly for us when He said that the enemy has a a three-point plan. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what He wants to do. It's not complicated. He wants to destroy your life. But then He said, but I have come that you may have life to the fullest. I've come to give you life to the overflow. I've come to give you life more abundantly. <clears throat> and it begins when we, when we surrender our disappointments, our frustrations, with the fact that it didn't happen when we thought it was going to happen. We planned and plans failed. And like Zachariah and Elizabeth, maybe you even gave your plans to God. God, we're asking you. They, they weren't out there cursing God. They were living for God. They were serving God, saying, God, this is our desire. They may have even said with the psalmist, Lord, we delight ourselves in you. Now give us the desires of our heart. <coughs> but when we put our full trust in Jesus, when we put our full life in his hands, and we surrender without strings attached, what we're really saying is, God, I believe. I genuinely believe that the life more abundantly, the life that you have for me, the life to the fullest, your plan is the best plan for my life. Your plan is the best plan for my life. And if my story ends with, but they were childless, I'll still serve you blamelessly. If my story ends with, they died of that sickness and were not healed, I'll still serve you till the end. However the story plays out, God... I believe your plan is the best plan. And I'll worship you and I'll serve you because I'm confident that your promises will be fulfilled in my life.